Welcome to Litigation Nation. I'm your host, Jack Sanker. Today's stories. A man driving a self-driving vehicle is charged with homicide when the car blows a red light, something it is obviously not supposed to do. Does the ADA apply to Uber? Case proceeds to trial posing that exact question and lawyers and judges facing ethical discipline based on their conduct online. All of that and more, here's what you need to know. Up first, the law school hypothetical is finally real life. Yes, can someone be guilty of homicide when they were involved in an accident with a self-driving car? This is from the LA Times. Now, in 2019, a Honda Civic pulled into an intersection after getting a green light. Traveling on the intersecting street, a 2016 Model S using its autopilot function, which is a version of a self-driving software, ran the red light, crashed into the Civic, T-boned it, killing its passenger and driver, Gilberto Lopez and Maria Neves Lopez, instantly. Prosecutors in L.A. County filed two counts of vehicular manslaughter against the driver of the Tesla, Kevin Raid. Now, according to the L.A. Times, experts believe that this is actually the first felony prosecution in the United States of a driver accused of causing a fatality while using a driver assist program in the vehicle. That, again, is the autopilot feature of the Tesla. The Times piece quotes Alan Kornheiser, director of the self-driving car program at Princeton University. Quote, it's a wake-up call for drivers. It certainly makes us all of a sudden not become so complacent in the use of these things that we forget about the fact that we're the ones who are responsible, not only for our own safety, but for the safety of others, unquote. Kornheiser went on to say if there is a guilty verdict, quote, it's going to send shivers up and down the spine of everyone who has one of these vehicles and realizes, hey, I'm the one who's responsible. Just like when I'm driving a 55 Chevy, I'm the one who's responsible for making sure that it stays between the white lines, unquote. The defendant, in this case, Raid, pled guilty and is out free on bail currently. Now, besides Tesla, there are other car companies in the self-driving game. Tesla has competitors such as Waymo and Argo. However, those companies are using paid test drivers to test out their self-driving software. Tesla, on the other hand, stands out because it is testing these features live on the road with normal drivers. If you purchase a Tesla, you can then pay Tesla $12,000 to unlock the autopilot program. Tesla collects the data from the use of that program as part of its development of ongoing self-driving features. Now, apparently, the California Department of Motor Vehicles requires other car companies to report crashes and failures to the state under its test permit system. But the agency has been allowing Tesla to opt out of those regulations. Now, Tesla says its autopilot program isn't true autonomous driving, so it is exempt under these regulations because it requires driver supervision. There is a corresponding civil case pending against Tesla and the driver as well. We will provide an update on that when we get some news. But for now, the homicide case is moving forward with the potential to set some really interesting precedents. Up next, a bench trial in the Northern District of California lawsuit against Uber began this week, where the plaintiffs, who are disabled and wheelchair-bound, have alleged that Uber has violated the Americans with Disabilities Act by failing to provide wheelchair access via its ride-hailing app. The plaintiffs 
Stephen Nemiskic, Francis Falls, and Scott Crawford have sought to use Uber's ride-sharing service on numerous occasions. Stephen and Francis are in New Orleans. Scott is in Jackson, Mississippi. The allegations are failure to accommodate their respective disabilities pursuant to the ADA. All of the plaintiffs allege that they have attempted to hail wheelchair accessible vehicles or WAVS waves, I think is what they're called, via the Uber application, but have been unable to get them. Falls in particular tells a story where he was out in the French Quarter in 2018, tried getting an Uber home. When no waves were available, he decided to wheel himself home. And on the way home, he was struck by a car and hospitalized for seven days, according to a report from Law 360. Now, according to the Law 360 report, during opening statements, plaintiff's counsel told the judge that Uber has a, quote, deep-rooted accessibility problem and has been treating accessibility as an afterthought. The allegations demand that Uber make reasonable accommodations to allow people with disabilities to use those platforms, and specifically, it seems as though they are demanding Uber provide a wide network of waves available in both Jackson and New Orleans so that disabled individuals such as the plaintiffs could regularly hail Ubers via the application. Uber, in its opening statement, told the judge that ordering Uber to make waves more available would be prohibitively expensive for Uber. And that if these lawsuits, which are specific to Jackson and New Orleans, were successful, Uber would face similar litigation from municipalities across the country demanding similar accommodations. Now, in what seems like an important fact for the plaintiffs, they allege that Uber has rolled out wave programs in 11 other cities, but not in Jackson and not in New Orleans. The argument Uber is making is probably exactly what you'd expect. Uber alleges that it's just an app. It has little to no control over the kinds of vehicles that its drivers use. It argues waves aren't in high demand, so requiring it to provide them is costly and unreasonable. Uber argues it has no regulatory requirement to provide waves, but it does so anyways, I guess out of the goodness of its heart. It's not in the Law 360 piece, but I'm sure Uber is raising the same arguments it does in other lawsuits, namely that its drivers are independent contractors, so Uber has no liability for their specific conduct. It should be noted that Uber actually advertises on its website, quote, our technology and the transportation provided by drivers has transformed mobility for many people with disabilities, and we're committed to continuing to develop technologies that support everyone's ability to easily move around their communities, unquote. So this is a case about wheelchair access vehicles, sure, but it's really about whether Title III of the ADA covers a company with a structure like Uber's. Now, remember that Uber's business model relies heavily on the fact that it classifies its drivers as 1099 independent contractors. That distinction is important for liability purposes. If you've ever sued Uber before based on something one of their drivers did, usually the first move from Uber is a motion to dismiss based on the fact that they classify their drivers as independent contractors. And that issue has been tested again and again and again in harassment and assault and tort lawsuits against Uber. But the question of whether the ADA applies to Uber at large is unsettled at this stage. And if it is decided that Uber isn't governed by the ADA, then what's to stop, I don't know, anyone else from copying a similar corporate structure and in effect undoing the ADA? Opening statements started this week. We'll likely get a decision before the end of January, and we'll keep you posted. Next, a couple of stories that should serve as a reminder, don't get personal, don't get angry online. First, from the Chicago Daily Law Bulletin, 
A judge in Cook County was ordered to receive sensitivity training and gender bias counsel this week. The judge whose name I'm not going to say because I, I've mentioned this before, I don't like to pile on, uh, was heard saying about a New York-based criminal defense attorney who was appearing via Zoom or other remote video conferencing software in court, quote, can you imagine waking up next to her every day? Oh, my God. I couldn't have a visual if you paid me, unquote. Yikes. So this was caught on video. The attorney uh, he was describing actually heard this, and the Illinois Circuit Court of Cook County took disciplinary action against the judge. Uh, the judge was ordered to receive training I mentioned already and was ordered to appear before the executive committee of the Circuit Court of Cook County. The attorney was appearing remotely before the judge seeking to have a client's 1996 murder conviction thrown out. Uh, and folks, just make sure that you're on mute if you're not the one who's talking. Uh, we all should know that by now. Next, a Las Vegas attorney was reprimanded for violating confidentiality rules and other ethical rules in response to an AVO review. So in this instance, the lawyer was allegedly being retained by someone accused of sexual abuse. And the Nevada Justice Alyssa Kadish, who was presumably presiding over the ethics hearings, summarized the review on AVO as follows. Quote, without revealing any details about his case other than the fact that he faced sex crime charges, the client explained on AVO that he had consulted with the attorney in question who, while offering assurances that he had experience with the type of matter and the case would not likely move forward to trial, left the client and his wife very uneasy. Their uneasiness grew as the preliminary hearing approached, during which time they had difficulty contacting the attorney directly, and it appeared that the recommended investigator had done nothing. And then, on the eve of the hearing, the attorney reversed course and told the client he needed to come up with $40,000 to retain him moving forward. Okay, so that's what the negative review was summarized by the justice who's presiding over the ethics hearing. Um, so what was the response that got this lawyer in trouble? Quote, Mr. and then the client's last name, we realize that being charged with sexual abuse against a child is truly an upsetting and stressful predicament. However, posting a false review does not help your current state of affairs. Quote, prior to retaining my firm, you admitted to police that you had kissed your nine-year-old neighbor on the lips with an open mouth and that this nine-year-old girl was sexually attracted to you, a 40-year-old man. Nevertheless, I was able to negotiate your case to a reduced charge of coercion and a sentence of probation. After lengthy preliminary hearing, you rejected the state's offer of probationary sentence, which is your right. Our firm then quoted you a free trial of 40000 which is reasonable considering the circumstances of your case, unquote. So what seems to have happened here is the lawyer included a lot of salacious details in his response to the review that he did not need to do and under the model rules you can refute negative or disparaging allegations against you by partially using confidential information if it was your client that brought it up so to speak but you are limited by what is reasonable and what is needed to refute the allegations and the ethics panel held that this was probably a step too far in that direction which disclosing publicly that the client had told him, presumably in confidence, that he kissed a nine-year-old uh, does seem to be confidential, at the very least. In any event, the attorney is facing ethical discipline based on his response to the review. The lesson here, folks, for both of these stories is don't get personal and don't get angry online, especially when there's a record.
Thanks, everyone. That's the show. I hope you enjoyed. Thanks for listening. Go ahead and leave us a review if you have any suggestions or stories you think we ought to cover. If we got anything wrong, let us know. Otherwise, we appreciate all of you so far. This is a project that's developing and we're making a lot of progress. We're gaining some listeners in different parts of the country and different parts of the world, which you love to see. We'll talk to you next week. Thank you.